This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 9th, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, one of the most contentious issues since COVID appeared has been the social measures that were taken, mostly early on, to try to prevent the spread of infection. Foremost among these has been masking. Resistance to wearing a mask isn't a new phenomenon. In fact, in 2021, we published a graphic perspective about that topic. The piece you're referring to was quite interesting. It discussed mask use through the ages. While there were some people who used masks earlier, the discovery that infection was caused by microbes led to a substantial increase in their use. Two large epidemics that occurred in the 1910s, the Manchurian Plague in China and the worldwide Spanish flu epidemic, led to widespread use among many members of the public. But the recommendation to wear masks quickly led to backlash, particularly in the U.S. Eric, it's interesting to think back a hundred years and the challenges as we understood the microbial basis of infectious diseases. I reflect on the work of doctors Carroll and Reed and others who really helped us understand that microbes can be spread a variety of ways, including via vectors like mosquitoes. This at the time was one of the major barriers to the creation of the Panama Canal. So the idea of masking and other preventive measures requires a really clear understanding about the transmission of a given microbe and the vectors that are used in that transmission, whether it's a mosquito or an arthropod vector, whether it's physical contact, whether it's through respiratory mechanisms, really understand the biology of transmission opens up the opportunity to abrogate this process and decrease the disease burden. I think that's right, Lindsay. As you know, there has been a lot of discussion over what kind of mask to use under what circumstances. And the truth is that we have very little clinical data to guide us on mask selection. However, certainly different masks have different characteristics, and one can make some guesses, at least, based on first principles as to what mask might be right to use under what circumstances. And where does the use of masks stand at this point? Well, here in the U.S., masks have been a moving target. Many places had mandatory masking policies early on, but apart from in healthcare facilities, most of these have vanished. At this point, mask use among the public varies tremendously from locality to locality. I just returned from Japan, where I don't think there's a law, but there's tremendous social pressure to wear masks whenever indoors. And in fact, almost everyone continues to wear masks outdoors. I've also been in Europe a couple of times in the last month, where almost no one wore masks. For now, the U.S. CDC has tried to simplify their recommendations based on the local incidence of disease. My sense, though, is that there has been pretty limited uptake of those recommendations. As we think about masking, it really is addressing the issue of respiratory illness in general, not just SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. And as we are seeing in this country and around the world, a variety of pathogens like respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, and right on its tails, influenza, are emerging and spreading quite rapidly with substantial associated illness, especially in the pediatric population, as we are seeing in our pediatric hospitals filling up. So as we think about masking, it's more than just for SARS-CoV-2. It's really about respiratory viruses and how we think about that and we think about mitigating their transmission, especially in the explosive contexts as we see as winter approaches. Now, of course, 
influenza is a bit more complicated than simply masking because the disease essentially was not present for a year when masking was very intensive early on in COVID, the pre-existing immunity in the population has fallen. Therefore, there's a much larger population of susceptible people and people who are more likely, therefore, to become symptomatic when they become infected or to become more severely ill once infected. So masks certainly would help, but immunity helps as well. I think you're absolutely right, Eric. And we have three seasons of minimal exposure to both influenza and RSV, among other respiratory viruses. Therefore, the susceptibility across the population is substantially higher, as you point out, with lower immunity, thus increasing the risk for much larger amounts of virus to be produced across our communities and therefore spread. But it's not just these respiratory viruses, it's all respiratory viruses. And the intervention to prevent transmission really depends on our understanding the biology of the different respiratory viruses. I think we need to be careful not to think one size fits all for all respiratory viruses. Certain viruses like rhinovirus was able to cause substantial transmission despite masking, while some of the other viruses like influenza and RSV did not. So we do need to understand the biology of the viruses and how they're transmitted to really understand how different mitigation measures will likely work. We know that masks work, at least as measured by their direct ability to filter out pathogens, but there's been very limited evidence as to how effective they are when worn by the general public. Today, we published a new study that sought to determine whether or not masks work in real life. So how did that study work? You're right, Steve. The data supporting mask use has largely been epidemiologic. Lindsay just referred to the fact that many respiratory viral illnesses almost disappeared during the time when masking was most intensive. So certainly when used at a very large scale, they appear to work. However, it's impossible to have the very high quality data that would require a randomized controlled trial. It just would be very difficult to do. So instead, people have used observational trials but the problem with observational trials is that people who choose to wear masks are often very different from those who choose not to. So in the study that we published, a group of investigators took advantage of a natural experiment. Masks were required in all Massachusetts schools through the 2021-2022 academic year, but that policy changed at the end of February. Over the next few weeks, most local school systems changed their individual policies. Many schools continued intensive testing, although the individual testing protocols varied from system to system. This gave the researchers a chance to look at the change in incidents among students and staff before and after the change in policy using a method known as difference in differences analysis. Since schools instituted changes at different times, different schools stopped mask requirements at times when the community incidence of disease varied. Thus, the researchers could compare districts that had earlier and later changes, along with two districts that never rescinded the masking requirements. Eric, as you point out, studying the impact of a social intervention requires very important and careful consideration of temporal and physical factors. What I mean by that is what is the infection force in the community at the time you are looking at a change in intervention? And that infection force, how much viral transmission there is around us, may change week by week. So by taking this type of methodology where you have a change in practice 
due to school requirement concerns and what's feasible, and then doing this differences and differences type analysis, one mitigates the complications of rapidly changing dynamics of respiratory virus transmission and behavior. So it's a very clever design to try and provide some insight into a very complicated question. And what was the upshot? What did the investigators find? Well, first, as Lindsay was just saying, the incidence of COVID-19 changed. It increased markedly in all the schools, most strikingly during May, when the rates in the community in general climbed. However, the rates were lower in the districts that never lifted mask restrictions. When the investigators compared the weekly incidents just before and just after the change in policy in each school, difference in differences analysis showed that the rate of transmission was significantly higher after lifting mask restrictions in 12 out of 15 weeks. This was most striking when community incidence was high and was true among both students and staff. Overall, the investigators estimated that masks prevented almost 12,000 cases among the school population over the 15-week period they looked at. So their conclusion was masking does work, and it limits the number of cases and the number of missed school days as well. I think this type of analysis raises some interesting questions. What is the value of protecting the individual's health or the community's health, or both? And what is the value of the school functioning more normally with less illness, missed days, decreased ability to pay attention, really the school functioning more normally as an educational environment? And I think this is a real challenge for us as a community to think through how to both protect the individual and enhance the value of the school environment. Lindsay, you raise an interesting point, which is what do masks do? Do they protect the person wearing them or do they prevent the person who's infected from transmitting disease? The answer is probably some combination of the two. Certainly, they protect the person wearing the mask, but it's likely that they also decrease transmission from those infected individuals. So they kind of are doing double duty. Lindsay, we've talked about the official recommendations, but what do you recommend for immunocompromised people for whom you care? And actually, how do you define immunocompromised? Steve, I think this really follows from what Eric just sort of shared with us, which is why do I wear a mask? Do I wear it for me or for you or for both? And I think that's something we have to think about as we try to protect those who have a weakened immune system. And I think as we think about COVID, the attenuation of severity of illness may be a combination of background community, individual immunity, and perhaps some attenuation of virulence features in the virus. Very difficult to disentangle those forces. What is evident is that we have substantially less hospitalization due to COVID infection. The exception to this are immunocompromised patients. Those who are severely immunocompromised, you know, undergoing cancer chemotherapy, a status post an organ transplant, and many of our patients on a highly potent immunosuppressive biologic agents, be it for neurologic illness, GI illness, rheumatologic illness. So it's not a small number of our community. And then how do we help these individuals be protected from the consequences of significant respiratory viral infection. We've already discussed that there's more than COVID. There's RSV, there's influenza, as well as COVID variants that are circulating and may escape some of the immunity elicited. 
So I think it's really important for our patients who are vulnerable immunologically to minimize exposure. And that's where mask wearing, particularly indoors and in congregate settings, is actually quite important and a high quality mask. But not only should they be thinking of that as they interact with others, but the concept of cocooning, which is the people around our immunocompromised patients, who lives at home with them, parents, spouse, children, other relatives, how do we help mitigate bringing these types of easily and highly transmissible viruses into the home to infect them where they can have quite severe illness? So that raises the issue of how to build a protective sphere around those who are very vulnerable. That can be through vaccination and immunologic protection in healthy individuals. It can be through barrier methods so they're not exposed. But I think these are all very important considerations to protect our loved ones, because I think most of us have a loved one who has some impairment of their immune system, and we need to think carefully about preventing them from being exposed. Lindsay, I think that's very helpful. Of course, as you say, many people know someone who's immunocompromised or in contact with someone who is immunocompromised, whether they know it or not. So it does raise the question of where do those cocooning efforts end? Does it mean just household members? Does it mean coworkers or fellow students in a classroom? And it's not so easy because eventually you run up against exactly the problem that we discussed at the beginning, which is that many people are very reluctant to wear masks. So practically, it's easiest to encourage those who are themselves at highest risk to wear masks. And it gets more difficult as you move farther and farther away from that individual in terms of contacts. So Eric, I would add to that the seasonality and when pathogens arrive in a community. So as I look at the next three to four months, I am very concerned that respiratory viruses, especially RSV and flu, in addition to SARS-CoV-2 variants, are going to lead to substantial illness in our patients who are most vulnerable and significant morbidity. We forget that influenza is often associated with 50,000 deaths in this country. Obviously, the last two, three years are different. So there is substantial morbidity associated with these respiratory viruses, and this year may well be substantially greater than the averages because of the lack of exposure for two or three years. So I think it's important to think about the seasonality and the issue of congregate settings. And so I would ask our community to think carefully over the next three to four months, how do we augment our protection of our most vulnerable community members? That also requires two additional features. One is certain environments of greater risk, like hospitals, healthcare settings, where we know individuals who are more vulnerable are aggregated for healthcare. Thus, in healthcare settings, I suspect mask wearing will be required for the medium term, if not longer, given the importance of preventing outbreaks in that setting. But that really is any environment where there are vulnerable individuals should really think about augmented prevention measures. And then how can we think dynamically in that in the next three to four months with winter and high transmission of respiratory viruses, do we have greater precautions? While next April, May, June, when it becomes warmer out, we spread out more and many of the respiratory pathogens have subsided, at least in their seasonal nature, are we able to sort of modulate 
our interventions proportionate to the risk. That's very difficult to communicate because most of our community likes to know yes, no. Should I wear a mask? Yes, no. Not perhaps I should wear a mask during this period of time or in this setting, but during this period of time or that setting, it's not as important. That's very hard to communicate, very hard to frame, given all of the different inputs to make that kind of decision making. But I think it's important so we mitigate the mask fatigue that we all feel, myself included. But I have to balance that against the risk of those around me and the consequences if they become infected. It raises a question of not just immunocompromised people, but those people at average risk. Certainly, as you're pointing out, Lindsay, everyone ends up protecting those at increased risk by wearing a mask. But what about the individual risk for those who have been vaccinated and or infected with SARS-CoV-2 in the past, which means most of the population in a country like the U.S. at this point? Should they be wearing masks? We do have some guidance, of course, from the CDC, and they have made that as simple as possible so that people can make choices based on that. Of course, it still remains an individual decision. I will point out that there has been more transmission in social gatherings, a lot more transmission, including at infectious disease meetings, where many people are choosing not to wear masks while fully understanding the risks. The complicated piece of this is that it's still easy to become infected. On the other hand, for those at average risk, it's very unlikely that they'll get severely ill. So I don't want to send the message that people shouldn't wear masks. On the other hand, the positive message is people are doing a lot better who get sick, who don't fall into the category that you're talking about, Lindsay. So the decrease in masking has not resulted in what we saw early in the epidemic, which is hospitals being overwhelmed and a very high death rate. I mean, I guess, Eric, I would think about masking as another tool. And it is a tool which can be quite effective in mitigating respiratory virus transmission, not abrogating, but substantially mitigating. And as we understand the risk of the different pathogens around us presently, it's a tool that can and should be deployed thoughtfully. And that includes at gatherings where individuals can deploy this tool to decrease their and other person's risk. So I do think it's quite useful. And as we get more data about how it works, it can inform the decision-making for all of us as we think about deploying this tool to protect ourselves and those around us. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.